0: nine six with the man the myth the legend mr howard bloom author of einstein michael jackson and me the search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll i think i got it right i i don't think i fully understood who you were the last time we talked i knew very little about you i liked your book and i was like here's an author i want to have on listening to this book on audible which will be in the description it's a fantastic listen i left a good review on there <laughs> I didn't quite realize just who you were just the your your resume almost it sounds like a fictional character
1: the yes nom- it does I, in, in <laughs> tommy in 1995 my first book was about to be published and I had to sit down and write a bio and it looked to me what I was writing down was all accurate but I couldn't believe it It looked like it was the ravings of a delusional madman. It didn't look like it made any sense. But, you know, I used to lecture my artists, you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. Because I meant that when kids are 12 years old and they're making the transition from childhood to sexuality and they're confused, they're going to put your posters on their wall and you're going to be the role model on which they grow. Well, the role model I'm trying to leave behind is one that says you can follow all of your curiosities simultaneously. And so that when your friends hit the age of 40 and are having a midlife crisis, and they're just, uh, they're they're planning elaborate divorces if they're women to find themselves. And if they're men, they're buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes because they have no idea why they're on planet Earth. You will just be returning from the desert where you've been searching out your multiple curiosities with your first answers, your first big picture answers. And while your friends feel they're at the end of their lives, you will feel you're at the beginning of theirs. So a few years ago, I was asked to give a talk um, out here in Brooklyn and I said, why don't I do one on living seven lives in one. And to give that talk, I tried to write down all the various things that I've done in my life. And it wasn't nine, or it wasn't seven lives, it wasn't nine, it was 29. But, you know, there's this, there's, there's this poem that I latched on to a long, long time ago, or latched on to me. It's um, To His Quiet Mistress by Andrew Marvel, And it says, let us take all our strength and all our sweetness and roll it up into one ball, and roll it through rough strife, through the iron gates of life, thus though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. In other words, you're only going to get a limited amount of time on this planet. So how can you raise a big middle finger to death? Um, And the answer, live at least seven lives in one lifetime. And that's the example that I'd like to leave behind so that kids feel justified in following all their curiosities and being the modern equivalent of Renaissance men and women.
0: And so, and the truth at all costs, including your life, right? That one. and I also wanted to show you, I don't know if you can see it, the new background of my phone is lies run sprints, truth runs marathons." a quote I uh-huh, never heard, Michael Jackson. a quote I had never heard before your book. Yeah, and that is the new right. background of my phone. and it's right the 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 amount of lessons taught in your by the way, I talk about rolling everything up in a ball. The Zz Top guys welding the cage together off the back of the right. truck. Holy shit! But yours has—I love the one thing you always search for, and it's—it's it's the gods inside, the soul, the souls beneath the floorboards. Right. And to me, there's—I've always tried to put a finger on that. What exactly is that? And you go through your book again with a list of names that it sounds. I mean, it sounds like if I was a kid and, you know, I was lying and they'd be like, what'd you do? i would be like, I worked with Michael Jackson and Buzz Aldrin and, you know, I'm, I'm a Superman and a fireman and it, it. going through all of them. And most notably, I thought the when you described the photographer, the forty one thousand dollar procession photographer, right, dropping the backlight and the things in the center of the eyes and the light coming out to make it seem like they're interested in you. Right. The supernormal stimuli. You do seem to. And this is perhaps, well, you've been on, that's another thing. I didn't know you were on Joe Rogan. And I saw you and I was like, of, of course he was. <laughs> what you talk about with John Mellencamp, and I thought it was perhaps the most interesting part. Which you, obviously you talk about the gods inside. You talk about how it all comes together. You know, your, your dancing experience or anyone that's had that experience where it all comes together. And it's the adrenaline, you know, it's Will Ferrell. I blacked out what happened. It's that, right. it's that moment of, of godness. Of not quite Satori, but you went into the what what no one sees afterwards, and it's the draining, the the pits under the eyes. The you come down and at the risk of lacking all humility, I find after a very good podcast episode I'll do with someone like right. yourself or or Mr. Charlie Duke who walked on the moon. When I do an episode with with kind of a larger than life figure. I I identify with that. I I shut the laptop afterwards and I kind of have to sit back and it feels like I just sprinted 10 miles. Right. But but to me, I thought that was the most interesting aspect of all of it was that anyone can kind of look at someone. You look at a post Malone or a, a Justin Bieber or a John Lennon. And you're like, you know, of course there's the God, right? He, he, he taps into the, to the concert goers and it all, it rushes through them. But you talk about afterwards and you talk about the crushing, almost black hole void that and they can't do it again and they can't do it again or like bet midler and then when it's time to go it's like a slow motion standing up and it's like the calcification breaks off of them and they come to life and i know i'm just fanboying right now but could with all of your experiences it's interesting that no matter what you say the most the most inspiring and the most uh godly of them all is michael jackson and it's unlike right. anything you've ever seen. Can you go into that more than what you just described in your book, but rather just how what he sees in one the inch of the cover art to, to any of us would be orgasmic? Well, here's the,
1: here are two Michael Jackson stories okay. that more than anything else get across a, a sense of who he was. So I, I wanted to say no to... In fact, I did say no to the Jacksons for four months. I, I kept telling the managers who kept calling me, That you could train a talking dog to say Michael Jackson on the phone, and any editor would give you a cover in exchange for an interview. And that's not what I do. Um, So, but one day they called and they said the Jacksons are going to be in New York City and they want to meet you. And Tommy, you know, from the book, I wasn't raised among other humans Mm -hmm. at all. Other kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. My parents didn't want to have anything to do with me either. And so I grew up in a bedroom with laboratory rats, guinea pigs and guppies and laboratory rats, guinea pigs and guppies don't know ordinary human routines. But one of the things that I had heard about normal human beings is that if you are going to say no to somebody, you owe them the decency of saying no to their face. So I could not say no to this meeting with the Jacksons, even though my answer was clearly no. And the minute I, you know, I, I, Subwayed into town to the Helmsley Palace Hotel, went up to the second last story, the story just under the top story, and uh, walked down the corridor to their room and knocked on the white with guilt on it door. And when the door opened that far, two inches, um, I could see I was going to have to say yes. Um, And the Jacksons were in some sort of serious trouble and I hadn't realized it and I felt stupid for not realizing it. Well, the story of Michael Jackson. So many months later, I'm in Encino, California, at Marlon Jackson's pool house. And a pool house is a little building next to the pool that's just big enough to have one reasonably big room on the first floor and another room the same size on the second floor. And the brothers treated me in a remarkable way. There uh, There were arcade games around the walls and there was a billiard table in the middle of the room. And the Jacksons put me in the middle and flanked me on either side while we looked at tour jackets and and T-shirts, and I was trying to explain to them, we tried to do the most surprising stage show in the world. So your T-shirts and your tour jackets have to reflect that. They have to be of really superior quality. And then I heard the screen door opening, and... I'm a girl with the frog in my throat. Good. Um, <coughs> so I heard the screen door opening, and I knew it was Michael. So I walked over, and I did something, another thing that I had never done before in my life, but that somebody had taught me when I was 19 years old. If somebody comes into the room that other people want you to meet, you walk over, stick out your hand, and say, Hi, my name is Howard, and the other person sticks out his hand and says, Hi, my name is Michael. Now, I had read roughly a thousand press clippings about Michael Jackson, and every single one of them said he's a bubble baby. He's afraid of people. If you reach out your hand to him, he's going to withdraw in fear. So I stuck out my hand to the person coming through the screen door and said, Hi, I'm Howard. I believe it was the first time I'd ever done it in my life. And the other person stuck out his hand shook my hand, and said, Hi, my name is Michael. And his, it was a normal handshake. It was a little softer than most. It certainly wasn't one of those, I'm going to crush you until you faint handshakes. I'm the dominant beast around here. And I said, Michael, I've got a press release. I need your approval on. Could I read it to you? So Michael said, why don't we go up the stairs? So we went up this little flight of stairs and to the second room, and the room on the second floor was packed literally to the ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. And Michael sat on one amplifier, and I sat on another amplifier facing him, and I started to read a press release, the press release. Now, a couple of things you need to know. Um, I was the only record, the only PR company president who wrote his own press releases, and I did it for a simple reason. If I was out to capture the very soul of you, the gods inside of you, I couldn't turn my material over to a writer to write that up. He would not have seen what I had seen and wouldn't be able to get it across. So I was going to have to write the stuff myself. Plus our whole PR campaign was going to be based on what was in our written materials, the bio, the press releases. And if I had a vision to get across... I had to give that vision as vividly as possible to my publicists and to the press people they'd be talking to. So another thing you have to know. When I was 12 years old, I sat down to read Einstein's Theory of Relativity. And in the introduction to the book that Einstein had written about it, it was as if he reached out through the page and grabbed me by the lapels and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it's not enough. to to be able to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Einstein had given me my marching orders. You know, my whole life was committed to science Mm -hmm. at that point. And I was reading two science books a day, and I'd gotten my start in theoretical physics and microbiology and was busy accumulating credentials in those fields at the age of 12. So I took this very seriously. Einstein was one of my role models, my icons. So I got into writing very heavily. And at NYU, I ended up being nabbed. So I had a little incident with the poet in residence. The poet in residence thought I would be the next great poet to come out of NYU. And one day he said, uh, look, Bloom, wait until the class empties. Close the door. Sit down in that seat. I need to talk to you. So I waited until everybody left. I closed the door. I sat down in the balling-out seat. This didn't look good. And he said, look, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the Literary Magazine. This year I'm telling you, you are the Literary Magazine. You are the editor of the Literary Magazine. You don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now get the hell out that door. (laughs) so I, and I turned it into an experimental graphics and literary magazine that made big a big splash in the commercial art community, et cetera. But, so I not only had a background of obsessively working on my writing and my style since the age of 12, but I had edited uh, and art directed a literary magazine that won two National Academy of Poets prizes. So my writing was not just random drivel. Um, it wasn't just hacked material by any the sense of the imagination. So I start reading the press release to Michael and Michael begins to, after the first two sentences, he slumps in his seat and he goes, ah, and I read him two more sentences. He goes, ah, ah, and then we get to the end of the press release. And he says, man, that was beautiful. Did you write that? And of course I had the only person in my entire 17 year career In the music industry, whoever saw the art in the material that I was fashioning was Michael Jackson. Then we went downstairs and there was a meeting with the art director from CBS. So she arrived carrying five of the most gorgeous portfolios you've ever seen. Hand-tooled cherry wood, hand-tooled leather. And I had gotten out of, I had managed to evade grad school. I had four fellowships. In grad school, at a field that, in a field that didn't have a name yet, I was going to have to paste it together myself, called neuroscience now. And I realized the grad school would be Auschwitz for the mind. Since mm-hmm. I was 12 years old, I have been hunting for the gods inside of us. I have been hunting for the ecstatic experience, um, and for the transcendent experience, and for the kind of ecstatic experience that makes the forces of history. Um, that an Adolf Hitler summoned in his short sure. parades, for example. And I realized I wasn't going to find that in grad school. I'd be given paper and pencil tests to 22 college students at a time in exchange for a psychology credit. And how many ecstatic experiences are you going to see in that room while they're filling out these paper and pencil tests? Exactly. You got it. Precisely zero. So at any rate, um, so I had managed to escape grad school, by starting an art studio with the artists I gathered for the literary magazine. And so I knew the names of every single one of these artists. They were all legends in their field. They were at the very, very top. And the art director slid the first portfolio across the green felt of the pool table. And it was by an extraordinary fantasy artist named Michael Whalen. And Now, the brothers are standing on either side of us, flanking us. Michael and I are standing so that my right elbow is at Michael's left elbow. My right shoulder is at Michael's left shoulder. My right knee is at Michael's left knee. And Michael opens the first square inch of the first illustration in the portfolio. And his knees begin to buckle. He goes, oh, and that's conveyed to my body. Um, Because my body is pressed against his. The brother's on either side of us. And he opens it another couple of square inches. He goes, oh, and his knees buckle even further. Oh, oh, oh. And it's the first time in my life I ever saw anyone have an aesthetic orgasm. In fact, it's the only time in my life I've ever seen anyone have an aesthetic orgasm. So Michael was seeing the infinite in the tiniest of things. He was seeing more in just a few square inches of that painting than even the artist, a brilliant man, a brilliant creator, had ever seen. Now, what got me into science at the age of 10 was having a book in my lap that told me that the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. The first is the law of courage. The second is the law of awe, wonder, surprise, and curiosity. I saw the second lie, uh, the second rule of science look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. Come to life. I didn't just see it, I felt it in my joints, my muscles, and my bones. Um, As Michael went further and further into opening that first page, it was something I never expected to see in my life. In fact, I had never been capable of even imagining.
0: Do you think, so I've been meditating since 2008, and I can probably less than five times in my life have have I had these experiences where, and I think we talked about this last time, sure, LSD is great, but meditating, the the most ecstatic experiences I've ever had in my life is through meditation. And I say all that to say thousands of times I've meditated, maybe on four or five occasions, I've had these experiences that I can remember vividly, years apart where you are seeing things for the first time you you you're you're brought to tears by looking at the sun hitting the trees by seeing the clouds move going up to your bathroom and turning on the faucet and clean cold water comes or hot water it and i've and i yearn to always be back in that place because it's an appreciation of you look at a computer or a sweatshirt or and you're just so grateful for everything and i'm realizing as you're telling this story It sounds like he had you and I could put on night vision or thermal goggles and we could see something that like, you know, the Delta Force soldiers see. It seems like he either had one built in or he could contact it more or or uh, um, utilize it more readily than you and I. He saw what I'm getting is he saw the gods inside that you even, you know, a master of the star making machine still had to work at do you believe that he's someone that just saw the beauty and that's not to take away from his work ethic do you think it was more readily available to him the ability to see the the shimmering platinum soul inside everything
1: well it wasn't just more readily available to him it was available to him in a manner i had never seen or imagined okay um it it set a new standard for what awe wonder surprising curiosity could be and in the book I mentioned that back in 1954, every sports physiologist on the planet knew that humans were not built to be capable of beating a four-minute mile. Yes, yes. And then along came a medical student in England named Roger Bannister and one of his friends who analyzed every move he made in running, got rid of all the little wastes of energy, and Roger Bannister beat the four-minute mile, the impossible deed. And since then, um, 1,800 humans have broken the four-minute mile. It's become standard for every internationally competitive runner to break the four-minute mile. So that's somebody who comes along, does the impossible, and expands the boundaries of human possibility. And that's what Michael should be. You know, Michael was on this planet for for 50 years, For 25 years, he was becoming Michael Jackson. And for 25 years, he was dangling on the cross. And which is one of the most unfair things I've ever seen happen to a human being. If there were a God, no such thing could possibly exist. No such fate. But because of the sexual scandals and stuff, we don't, we're not allowed to see who Michael Jackson really was. There are many, 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 many people, and I mean worldwide, Who love Michael Jackson and will never stop loving Michael Jackson. But even they don't know why they love him. And I'm trying to give you in this book a sense of that absolute remarkable capacity of Michael's two sense, two absolute capacities so that they become a standard for you, so that they can do what Roger Bannister did for the four minute mile, so they can expand the intensity of awe wonder surprise and curiosity that humans in general can perceive
0: you you talked about you have to excuse me i know i keep cutting you off i get i get i get excited you talk about how how much of a how it's the worst nightmare ever to reach your goal Right, become the biggest band here. Become the biggest band in the Midwest, yes, North right. America, the world. Once you do, it's over. You're laying on the the big bed in the Hawaiian room, doing cocaine, looking at mirrors on the ceiling. It's interesting that as as I talk to you, and even it happened last time, and it's happening this time, and in the back of my mind, there's this little voice going, "How the fuck am I talking to Howard Bloom right now?" <laughs> it's beautiful that that you don't see that. As I'm talking to you, you are. You know, I'm looking at you as the summit and you, like you said, Alexander the Great, you're up there going, you're looking at Michael Jackson. You're looking at the summit. Do you think he had the ability to look up or do you think, as you said, was it every fan, was it every critic that brought him down, that killed him? Did he have well, the ability to look up?
1: Absolutely. Uh, there, in fact, that was his natural way of looking at everything. Michael knew what tremendous and unusual gifts these qualities of all wonder and surprise of him were. He felt that he had been given these gifts by God and that because he had been given these gifts by God, it was his job to give those gifts to his kids. He was very consciously trying to overawe, to astonish, to fill with wonder and surprise his kids. Um, so but there's another aspect to Michael. Uh, the first rule of science is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. So in those days with the Jacksons, I would spend three days a, row, a, a, a week with the Jacksons, wherever they happen to be, and four days a week working at, uh, in New York at my office. And seven day weeks are normal for me. That's what I've done most of my life. So um, I'm sitting in my office on... Um, on 55th Street near Lexington Avenue. It's a two-story office with a circular staircase connecting the two stories in a Victorian building, um, which is very rare in that neighborhood of Manhattan because everything is glass and steel and little cookie-cutter boxes. Ours was not a cookie-cutter box or office. And behind my desk, I had a $19.99 red nylon knapsack that I bought at a bargain store on Times Square. And it, it contained a TRS-100 computer, which was the very first laptop computer. Um, it contained a spare shirt and a razor, because I was sort of uh, the, the, uh, the person who handled PR emergencies in the business. And I never knew when I was going to get a phone call asking me to be somewhere. Well, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I got a call from L.A. saying, you've got to be out here by 11 o'clock tonight. Michael is canceling his tour. You're the only one he will listen to. So now imagine that, Tommy. Somebody is telling me I'm the only person Michael Jackson will listen to? That's beyond astonishing. No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, because he is surrounded by very bright people. Um, However, most of those people turn out to be there to milk him, um, to use him. Um, they don't have a sense of awe, wonder and surprise about who he is and don't feel responsibility to get that across to the public, I do so I had my receptionist get me a reservation on a flight taking off in an hour and a half get me a car service, I put on a little red knapsack and I went running down the five flights of stairs um, when I arrived in California, I drove my rental car to the, the address I'd been given and it turned out that address was in the middle of a studio lot. And a studio lot is a very weird sight at 11 o'clock at night. Um, it has these great big aircraft hangar-sized buildings that seem to swallow light. They were all dark. One of them is lit. And that one even swallows the light inside of it. And it's the one the Jacksons are rehearsing for their victory tour in. So I entered the, the hangar um the studio whatever it's called the studio building and there are the jacksons on a 110 foot stage rehearsing for their victory tour now to give you an idea of what a 110 foot stage is when zz top decided to take texas culture to the world they had one of the biggest stages in show business history It was shaped in the state of Texas, it was tilted so that no matter where you were in the audience, you could see that it was shaped in the state of Texas, and it was 75 feet. The Jackson stage was 110 feet, um, almost one and a half times larger. Um, So I sat in the audience, there was no audience, but I sat in one of the chairs set for an audience, and watched as the brothers finished their rehearsal. And then we all filed out to a dressing trailer. Have you ever been, have you ever seen a dressing trailer? No. It's this great big van, this really big van, like almost like a school bus. And it's on the inside, it is a dressing room. It's a portable dressing room. So there was a bankhead of seats on one side, red vinyl. There was a red vinyl bankhead of seats directly facing it and there was a little narrow banquette next to the door, and that was the throne. So the brothers took the banquette on one side, Michael took the throne, and I took the corner location on the opposite banquette at Michael's immediate left hand. And Michael explained why he wanted to cancel, not cancel, he wanted to postpone the start of the tour. And he said, my brother jackie is the best dancer and choreographer i've ever seen now think about that for a minute tommy michael jackson is the most extraordinary student of dance this planet has ever seen he studied every move of figures from fred astaire to james brown so when he says that his brother jackie is the best dancer and choreography he's choreographer he's ever seen that is an expert opinion yes um And he reminds me that he has this quality of all wonder and surprise. And that's what, that's to get that to his audience is his primary obligation in life. And Jackie, a month earlier, had come down with a bone chip in his knee. And I knew that because I had flown out to LA to arrange the press conference with the doctors who performed arthroscopic surgery. Um, And. They were expecting Jackie to heal in a month. But he hadn't healed. And if Michael could not go out on tour with his brother Jackie, he could not deliver that quality of awe, wonder, and surprise. Taking things to the edge of the impossible. Which is what he did with his moonwalk. Taking things beyond the edge of the impossible. um, Defying the laws of physics. Um, So and then he explained something very important. He said, look, over a year ago, I found absolutely the best people in staging, the best people in lighting, the best people um, in, um, in security. And I signed them all to non-disclosure agreements. Why? Because I needed this tour to surprise my kids. Well, this explains something. And I explained it to Michael. The tour had been getting terrible press before I joined, and there was a guy named Dave Marsh who all the press people, if he said something, everybody else in the press said exactly the same thing, and Dave Marsh said, look, this tour is being put together by amateurs. We, meaning the rock crit elite, know everybody who's anybody in this business, nobody we know has been hired to do the staging. Nobody we know has been hired to do the lighting. Nobody we know has been hired to do the sound. And nobody we know has been hired to do the security. And that means the stage is going to collapse. The sound system is going to electrocute the performers. The lighting trusses, which are roughly five stories or six stories high, are going to collapse on the heads of the audience and kill people. And gangs are going to be running up and down the aisles. Stabbing people, slicing them over. Yeah. So you dare not take your kids to this tour. And I explained this to Michael because he has just explained to me why it has been possible for the press to make this outrageous claim. It's been possible because he did hire the best people in the business. But he signed them all to secrecy so he could surprise his kids. And as we're as we're having this conversation. I had possibly the only visual vision of my life. I've had many gut visions with no visual component. Like I sat down a manager once upon a time and told him, if you cover my ass with the band and let me bring out the lead singer and put all the focus on her, I will give you a star. And that was shot
0: gone.
1: And I sat down another manager once upon a time and said, if you do everything I tell you and you work the way I work 17-hour days, seven days a week. I guarantee you in two weeks, in two years, we will have a star. And that was Joan Jack. You
0: did in 18 months.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you've absorbed this book very well. You yes, get sir. an A+. Plus. Yes, sir. So so at any rate, um, I explained to Michael what Dave Marsh and the rest of the press has been saying and explained that if – I didn't give you the visual vision okay so the visual vision that I had is that Michael's ribs were golden gates and I saw those gates swing open and I saw 10,000 kids inside his chest his kids so I explained to Michael because of all these horrible things that have been said about this tour if you postpone your tour date It's going to verify everything that has been said against this tour. It's going to verify the idea that this tour is unprofessional. And as a consequence, parents will not send their kids to these tour dates. So I don't know how to explain this, Tommy, but sometimes you have a conviction. You know, a truth, you know, it so deeply that it's ridiculous. And so when you speak, it's with the power of a prophet. A very different power from the kind of power you and I have in ordinary speech. And Michael was delivering his prophetic message. And I was like Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea because I knew exactly what would happen if Michael made this mistake. And it would be horrible. So, in fact, it turned out I was the only one Michael would listen to. He agreed not to postpone the tour. So, But the point is, the first rule of science, the truth of any price, including the price of your life, Michael's dedication to his kids was his equivalent of that. The first law of science is about courage. Michael had an unwavering courage when it came to his kids. They were it in his life. So those are my two key experiences with Michael Jackson. And they tell you a little bit about who he is. And there's more in the book. Because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make you feel, Michael, as vividly as I did. So that he sets a new standard for the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And for look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. For all wonder and surprise. I'm trying to help Michael achieve what he was on this planet to achieve. Which is to expand the boundary of human possibility to expand the boundary of human perception.
0: And I I think you do a fantastic job. And the the book is insane. For everything we're talking about, this is just a sliver of it. You go I mean, Bob Marley, I never knew there was a gun squad against him just for one little tidbit. Or yes, the Top with the welded metal cage going down the highway, sparks taking a quarter mile of barbed wire. But I can say as someone who never had a a set in stone view of michael jackson i mean i remember i remember when he died I, remember, I was just going into college to me i remember i always remembered michael jackson i knew the moon i knew the moon dance or the moonwalk and then i remember all the news around it was oh you know the allegations towards sexual assault and your book listening to who better to listen to than someone with direct experience and i think you i think you preface it consciously or unconsciously going into the whole they pulled a tire iron and you're like well hold on no let's get the whole story you stalked them paparazzi style through the vans and you pulled a gun after driving like harassingly and you show that story and how you got them to back down which means that there's this underlying we see it now right fake news retractions but you saw then just how real it was which then calls into question well how much of what i know is real the earth is flat because the church told me well what what does my gut tell me what do my observations tell me and you go into it and you explain exactly what it is and you say this is a love this is a love he has for these children you explain his bedroom you go the, the bedroom not the same you go. It's, it's an office you explain right you explain the the we are the world the band-aid the the towing the party line and then profiting off the genocide you poke a lot of holes in this stuff with excuse my french with zero fucks given that completely changed my perception on Michael Jackson. That's astonishing, and, and I think it's—I mean, I—I I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant.
1: Well, well, let's tell the story of the tire iron so the audience yes, knows what we're talking about. Perfect. So the Jacksons um, were set to perform three dates at the Meadowlands, which is over in New Jersey, mm-hmm. just across the river from Manhattan. And um, I. Was able to operate from home doing that. I didn't have to take a hotel room. And I got into a subway on a Sunday and went into Manhattan to meet the Jacksons at their hotel, the Hemsley Palace, and go out with them to the Meadowlands for a sound check. When I arrived at noon, I was grabbed immediately by some members of the entourage. And they said, we're in trouble. We need your help. And the problem was... The Jacksons, uh, well, I'm getting the sequence moved. It must have been the previous day or something. But but the Jacksons had gone out to the Meadowlands to do their sound check. Um, in those days, stars like the Jacksons traveled in stretch limousines. Um, the Jacksons didn't want the press to follow them because the paparazzi. Were out for any shot they could get of Michael Jackson, even if, it, as in the case of Diana, Princess Diana, mm-hmm. even if it killed him. They didn't care. The shots they took were worth a lot of money. Um, so the paparazzi had staked out the, all of the exits, especially the main exit to the hotel. And they were looking for limos. Meanwhile, the Jacksons took vans. In those days, nobody took vans. Laundry took vans Fish took vans Bagel stores took vans But people didn't take vans So they got into their van And they left from the laundry exit And One car had Been staking out that exit It was two guys from The New York Post A writer and a photographer And When the Jacksons The Jacksons proceeded down I think it was 53rd Street, um, to 11th Avenue. It's a long drive through crowded traffic. 11th Avenue, on the other hand, is a four-lane highway um, with a divider in the middle. So when the Jacksons got on to 11th Avenue, there was a car that started pursuing them. This was like something out of a chase movie. And they kept pulling ahead of the car, and the car kept trying to pull ahead of them. And the car obviously wanted to do a maneuver where it skitters sideways so it blocks all traffic so the, the photographer can jump out and take pictures. Well, the guys driving the Jackson's van were LAPD, and they were trained in this kind of driving. So the car could not get ahead of them. Finally, the car, in desperation, jumped the divider. This is Sunday traffic when people are traveling with their families. It jumped the divider. It went against the traffic, taking a chance on killing entire families. Then jumped the divider again and catty-cornered, or whatever you call it, to block the Jacksons in the process blocking all traffic. Now, Michael gets about 350 death threats a day. So, And his security guys have to go through all of those death threats and try to determine what might be credible. So when they're... Van was blocked off. They had no idea of who was blocking them off. It could easily have been people making death threats and people seriously intent on killing Michael Jackson. Sure. So when they got out of the van, they got out with tire irons in their hands because they had no idea of what they were up against. And the two guys in the car got out and seeing the tire irons, one of them reached back into the car and pulled out a gun. Um, so... The whole thing was resolved. The Jacksons managed to get to the Meadowlands on time, but this was um, not a normal incident. So when I got to the hotel, I was grabbed and told, look, the New York Post is about to run a story on how the Jacksons' security people bullied poor, innocent press people. Can you stop that story? Well, that's not an easy thing to do, to stop a story. In fact, it's almost impossible but the answer was yes. So I talked to as many of the people who had been in that van as we could find. And I put together the story of what had happened, the story that I just told you. But that story was unknown when I walked into that into the hotel. The people who were asking for my help didn't know it. And I always thought that there was a thing called Gresham's Law and that it's good money drives out bad. So I always felt that truth drives out lies. And finding the truth, the first step is find the facts. Check them. Um, and I, it was only later, and, and this worked for me, driving out falsehoods with truths. Um, it was only many years later that I discovered that I'd gotten Gresham's law wrong. Gresham's law actually is bad money drives out good which pretty much characterizes what's happening with truth um, in the current era. But at any rate, so I managed to find uh, the phone number for the publisher of the New York Post who was on the golf course. And in those days, we did not have cell phones. We had phones that were wired to the wall. But I managed to get the owner of the Post on the phone. And I requested that he kill the story about the Jackson, the, the monstrosity uh, of the Jackson security people. And he said, well, I couldn't really do that. And I said, look, if you um, don't kill the story and you run the story, I will be forced to run with the actual story of what happened. Um, and apparently one of these two New York Post people had had a previous conviction on a gun charge. Um And it will make things look very bad for the New York Post, but it's the truth. So the story never ran. Um, That's that tale. And and God knows, I mean, how I managed to drive out false stories um, with true ones.
0: Well, to me, that's the importance of that story was it was more than just that. It was more more than the surface level of, oh, okay, you know you know, you got the good story yet. To me, that shows something much bigger. And it's for every story out there now that we now accept as truth, right? The victor's right history. We now have to look at and say, how many Howard Blooms were absent? How many stories right. didn't come out? And then when the individual is dead, Michael Jackson, it, wh- who, when's the story going to come out? Is it ever going to come out? Is it buried? Is it lost forever in the ether? And to me, that is what, I think it was the most perfect preface to the rest of your stories about Michael Jackson, because it showed right there. Unless, you know, met with the with the fear of God, it's you don't know what's going to come out. And when there is especially not only that, and then when there is intent behind it, right? the guy who who, you know, he he bullies by just by force and by scaring people. Horrible things can can come from that. And And they they have been coming from that.
1: Yes. Look at the the insurrection on January 6th. Yes. Donald Trump had been planning to make something like that happen. Yes. He didn't care what exactly it was um, for months. And I had put out a uh, YouTube video saying this is what Donald Trump is aiming for before the January 6th insurrection. So whenever I see a story that says... Uh, There's going to be an inquiry into who caused what caused the insurrection. I'm sorry, you don't need an inquiry. His name is Donald Trump. You can find him on a golf course in Florida.
0: They're going to come for you. They're going to say you incited (laughs) Howard Bloom incited January 6th. But it's so we've we've talked about all these things. I've got you for 12 more minutes. We've talked about all these. And and I believe I said this the first time we talked. And I can I can now say for sure the second time is listening through the book the very first or the kind of first coalescing conclusion in my mind is like howard howard bloom he's living the forrest gump life of pop stars but upon (laughs) upon, and i say that in the nicest way but upon further analysis and i realize that's completely incorrect forrest gump nothing wrong with them kind of stumbled into these things Right. You you didn't stumble into these things. You didn't Tom Brady didn't accidentally win seven Super Bowls. You didn't stumble into these things. But I notice in if you if you look between the cracks, you're actually a very humble guy in that you don't you you very quickly gloss over the we've got to put in 17 hour days, seven days a week. And then and then it's or, you know, how do you get through a cold? You work like hell, work through it, go for an extra long walk. And you kind of you kind of push it aside. And Tom Brady, how you won seven Super Bowls? Well, you know you you know you got to be positive. You got to keep your eyes on the prize. You got to like give yourself to it every day. And he kind of pushes it under. You don't really see it. I would like to know, and perhaps because I haven't read your other books yet, and I will. Are you going to give more of a story? I think the perfect example. I know I'm rambling. The perfect example is you talking about how to predict. You know the next big because you have to have that four-month lead in order to put the story out, and you have no powers of retention. But then you learned how to do all this. But even that, it's just a quick. It's just a quick. Well, I had to learn that. But what you're covering is this huge feat. Are you are you ever going to write a story, or have you already, about, the the unsexy side of the work ethic? You clearly follow the gods inside. You follow the fire, but you also, again, very humbly. You don't discuss the endless hours of work you put into it. And I think that gives the image to someone like myself, where at first I'm like, oh, this is the Forrest Gump of pop stars because, you know, I met this guy and then this guy. But then you look into it more and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy gave his heart and soul, blood and sweat to get to this point. Or is that not your desire to write about the hard work, but rather to write about the lessons that you've gained from it?
1: Well, I would love to do a book on all of the lessons I learned in how to work and how to make yourself productive yes. and efficient. It isn't easy. Tommy no. it doesn't come naturally. I mean, for example, I run 40 screens on my laptop at a time. Sometimes it's up to 80 screens on my laptop. Um, and, um, but I have to concentrate with ferocity. And what I've learned is that to concentrate on my main focus and not be distracted, I have to control my eyes. I have to avoid looking at the things that would distract me. I have to keep my eyes on the screen I'm working on. And I have to keep my fingers at the keyboard. Um, Because if I remove my fingers from the keyboard, it's going to take me 10 minutes to find my footing again. And I'm going to be typing all the wrong letters and, not just misspelling words, but coming out with absolute nonsense. Um, So it's tiny little disciplines, like how to control your eyes. I used to work at cafes, and every time a new person walks in the door, your eyes want to leave the screen and go to that person and check that person out. No, I had to learn to keep my eyes on the screen no matter what, distractions could come along little tiny details like that or in college when I first got to college I was just overwhelmed I was totally baffled and confused and one of the things I had to learn was how to sense how much time a project would take how to break it into manageable pieces how to do one piece a day with a sense of how long it was going to take Knowing those simple things, and I'm not even explaining them very well, is essential to being productive in work. But nobody writes about these things. However, I just turned 78 last week, and I, my girlfriend is 27, and she made me a deal. She'll live for another. She was planning suicide for two years. That's all. It's the only goal she had. And now she feels I am her future. So she made me promise that I will stay alive another 40 years if she can stay alive another 40 years. Now, in fact, it takes me about five years to write a book. So if forget the 40 year thing, if I have a life like most humans, I only have time for another two books in this lifetime. And I already have those two books mapped out. So there's no room for a book on the work ethic. And, you know, if somebody wanted to come along and interview me and do a book based on the interviews, um, I'd be up for that. But but that doesn't seem to be happening, and I've got to focus on these next two books. In fact, I'm 13 chapters into the next book, and I've been putting the chapters up as YouTube episodes to motivate myself um, for the next book.
0: What's the quote? If you can what you conceive and believe anything you you
1: conceive and anything you conceive conceive and believe you can achieve from Al Green, who got it from Napoleon Hill.
0: So what I'm going to have to do now, I didn't even mean to make this come up, but now it it seems to have arisen. I'm going to go through each of your books. We're going to do a one hour podcast for each of them. And we're (laughs) going to do a meta boiling down of the lessons from each of them. And that will we'll have to derive the work ethic story from that uh well we could do that it's Um, one hour you got to give me one hour a month i'll do the i'll do the legwork with the books right i'll boil it down into one and then how many books have you written seven seven and i'm
1: working on the eighth
0: you're working on the eighth and you're going to knock out the ninth in total it'll be nine hours of howard bloom condensed it'll be a it'll be a howard bloom uh crash course and well that sounds
1: very neat And one thing you should know about, there is now Howard Bloom Institute. Okay. And it is dedicated to keeping my ideas alive, my way of thought, um, when I'm dead. And there's a reason for that. When I was 10 years old and totally lost in Buffalo, and as I said, my parents weren't interested in me and other kids didn't like me at all. um, I was saved by that book that appeared in my lap with the first two rules of science. Basically, I was saved by Galileo who was used as an example for the truth at any price, including, including the price of your life. And Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the guy who invented the microscope mm-hmm. was the example or look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And so these two guys reached out across a distance of 350 years to save me. So my task is to reach out over the next 350 years and save the next lost, confused kid down the line. So that's what I am trying to do when the Howard Bloom Institute is there to build a platform um, on which these ideas can stay alive and act as a beacon for kids way down the line. So So anybody who's interested in working very hard and making real things happen and joining something like this I should contact me and I'll put them in touch with the Howard Brown Institute people. It's a wonderful team.
0: I will put it in the description. I mean, I can say that you don't need to wait 350 years. You've had a profound impact on my life. You were talking about, you you were saying how, you know, Michael Jackson, Oh, did you write that? Did you write that? Because your writing isn't just, you know, it's not just a blah, blah, blah thing you do on the side. Well, I, I would say I don't need to take Michael Jackson's word for it. You can, You can buy the books. You can do what I do. I get them on Audible. I listen and I go on the treadmill or I'm going about doing laundry and dishes and I'm listening to this story. You can get the writing firsthand. And I said that to you when I read How I Accidentally Started the 60s, your other book, which we covered last time. You have an absolutely superb way of writing. It's not, it's it's the most, I, I, the review I left on Amazon was you have the ability to use completely disconnected pieces, much like MacGyver would, to make a highly complex and specific tool, which is the tool is teaching lessons. And I think you have a fantastic way of doing that. And you've given me an inspiration. You've inspired me with that book and you've inspired me with this book. I'm like, okay. I can do this. I'm like, all right, I'm 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 in my own apartment with a microphone. I'm like, I can get to this level. I can do the next thing. I mean, I've thought about it a lot the last couple of days, the four minute mile, the standing on the shoulders of those before you. And then I didn't even know you had been on Joe Rogan. The last time we spoke, I didn't know it until about a week ago. And I sent a text to my mom. I said, mom, I've already interviewed a Joe Rogan guest. And she was like, who I was like, Howard bloom. I already had him on. But to me, that was the biggest jolt of, of confidence that I have felt in the last year, that I went, oh, I can do this. I I, I look at Joe Rogan, I'm, and you know, oh, it's the four minute mile. But now I look at it, and I'm like, it's the four minute mile. I can do this. I can be that's one of the wonderful. 1800. So no, I have to tell you, you don't you don't need to wait 350 years. I mean, by all means, do it. But you've helped me enormously, and I say that sincerely. So you Well, that's you, fantastic, Tommy,
1: because yes, that's sir. what I live for. Yes, sir. That's what keeps. That's why I apparently have, look, I do 1,250 vibrational plankings a morning um, and at the age of 78. Um, And I think one of the things that's keeping my body that of a 59-year-old, not a 78-year-old, maybe even a 49-year-old, is I live to inspire your life. I live to inspire as many lives as I possibly can. I live to give as many gifts as I possibly can to other people and little bits of feedback. And I usually on every single day doubt that I'm achieving any of that, but the tiny, any, every tiny little hint, like all the things that you've just said that indicates that I've succeeded with at least one human being keeps me alive for another day.
0: Hell yeah! You, you, I, I mean, I, 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 you inspire me to such an insane degree. The amount of things that you go through, I mean, the, the the amount I can identify with, the, it's the Auschwitz for the mind. I mean, I felt that getting ready to go to medical school. I was like, I want to find the divine and like, I don't think I'm going to find it actually slicing open brains. I was like, I think it's something more. I think I got to go jump into it and find it myself. But, and then, and then to be able to talk to you, I mean, man, you, I mean, sincerely, You've done that for me. And I and I don't know how to I don't know how to say this without sound cheesy or or Hallmark Hardy. So I won't. But I, I, I hope I can like Michael Jackson through the aesthetic orgasm or vibrating through your shoulder. I know we're not touching shoulders, but I, I hope you can feel that and I hope you can see it. I don't have you know, I don't have the forty one thousand dollar photographer and I don't I don't know <laughs> if you can see the light in my eyes, but it's there. And, and I sincerely mean that, sir. That's fantastic, Tommy. So uh, we should wrap up. I didn't even realize I'm a moron at seven o'clock. I thought I (laughs) saw. I'm an idiot. There you go. I lost sense of time because that's how much of an impact you had on me. So I mean that sincerely. I will let you go because I know you're a busy man. I'll put your books in the description. I'll email you. I am intent on interviewing you for each of your books and I will create the, the Howard Bloom work ethic book, or at least I'll put the interviews out there for other people to derive it from Mr. Howard Bloom. Thank you, sir. God bless you. And as he said at the end of the book, there is no God. Therefore, we have to create him and we have to act as God. would. We have to deify ourselves, something along the lines of we have to be the change we want to see in the world. A beautiful way to end your book. And I'm now rambling and keeping you. Howard Bloom, thank you so much, sir. God bless. God bless America. God bless everybody. Go buy the book. It's fantastic. Thanks, Tommy. I'll see you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you very much.
1: Recording stopped.